0: The U.S. healthcare system is so complicated, it's like a 10,000-piece puzzle. Among the many things needed to improve it is to be intentional about inclusivity at all levels. The Hit Like a Girl podcast, HIT Like a Girl podcast, works to listen and learn from women leaders within the industry who each hold a piece of that puzzle with the idea that if we connect more, we can change the bigger picture. New episodes are released weekly on Mondays and Thursdays, and you can listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Health Podcast Network, or wherever you listen to podcasts. To find out more, visit hitlikeagirlpod.com. That's H-I-T, likeagirlpod.com. Welcome to the collective voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. We have touched on a number of issues on this show with regard to equity, including discussions on unconscious bias and social determinants of health with regard to access and population health. Another area where equity is a concern is in clinical studies, clinical trials, where historically minorities, people of color, and women have been underrepresented. There's movement today, however, that seeks to ensure that the research used to develop and bring devices to market is equitable and that the patients involved in that research are reflective of the full population of patients who will receive treatments with these devices. One such initiative is MedTech Color Collaborative Community, a community key where MedTech stakeholders address minority health issues in medical device product development and clinical research. That's why we're excited today to have Kendall Whitlock. She is chair of the Product Development and Clinical Research for the Med tech Color Collaborative Community. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Albright. My day job is Chief Legislative Affairs Officer for Zealous Payments. Zealous, Z E L I S. Zealous's mission is to enable providers to simplify and save on their payments and claims. I also serve as the Communication Committee Chair for Weedy, that's W E D I. And Weedy is a national membership organization where the health information technology community connects, collaborates, and creates solutions for a better health system. And as I said, we are excited today to have Kendall Whitlock, Chair of Product Development and Clinical Research for the MedTech Color Collaborative Community. Kendall has been involved in clinical research and clinical trials for the past two decades. Kendall, welcome and very glad to have you here on The Collective Voice.
1: Good afternoon, Matthew, and thank you for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm I'm excited about today's topic, uh, but before we get to it, uh, can you tell
0: a little bit about um, your story, how you came, uh, how your interest in this subject uh, came about? You know, every superhero has an origin story. What's your origin story?
1: So it's a fun question, and thanks for asking. So I would say that my origin story is broken into three parts, the first of it was in my freshman year of college, I had an unexpected medical event that led to a two week hospitalization in the first week of school. And I was devastated and confused. Um, I learned that I was having not just an allergic reaction to a new medication, but I was having something called a Stephen Johnson syndrome. of a reaction, which is a severe allergic reaction, and the experience um, had my organs hypertrophied. They were enlarged to four times the size, and I had led a pretty healthy lifestyle and my family had restrictions on on how we ate and what we did. So to have such a severe response, I was just curious, well, how did this happen? So um, my fascination with the medical literature uh, evolved from my freshman year of college to my senior year, which was the second sort of part of the, the origin story And I was participating in the honors program at that time. And so I had learned a little bit based on having had that Stephen Johnson syndrome that lasted a couple of weeks. And I ended up taking the semester off. But then I ended up in the honors program for the last two years of of my, my junior and senior year of college at Spelman College in Atlanta, Georgia. And as a person who was writing a thesis and learning more about how medical literature comes to be i started to see differences in who was represented in the patient populations in the medical literature and i grew a little bit frustrated and i thought how is it that there are certain segments of the population that are absent or underrepresented in these research papers because what if the knowledge of the science is not applicable? It's not apples to apples. So I thought something's got to give there because what happens to say women, for example? And the third pivotal event of my origin story is tied to that. The guy I was dating at the time, um, God bless his dad, uh, passed away unexpectedly of a heart attack. And so the questions I was asking and the review of the medical literature, my thesis from my honors program was in cardiovascular uh, risk reduction. And I was, really un- I was unclear how someone who was at the time 44 years old, had no history of heart disease, African-American male, just suddenly passes away. Uh, without any history of disease. So I was curious scientifically. I was curious about my own medical experience. And then I was writing uh, my thesis, which had me perusing the literature, at which time I learned that women, for example, were uh, less represented in clinical trials than they are today. And there have been uh, laws uh, written about the representation increase in women and and, and ethnic minorities and racial minorities in clinical trials. So those three um, pieces of the story are really the roots of uh, really the catalysts for for the decision I, I have to enter uh, the pharmaceutical industry and clinical research.
0: And, and fascinating how the personal ran into the the, the career uh, path that you finally chose. So uh, mm-hmm. that's a that's a fascinating story. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm always I've always been amazed um, when I first started learning about the. The inherent bias in, in the, and and how those research, those clinical trials were carried out, like uh, just thinking how, how they're all men and how, how could you apply that same like amount of medicine, same procedure, same processes to, to a woman? I've always been fascinated by that, like how, how in a very scientific way. How would you think that that would take care of all populations? Right. Right.
1: And and as a person who was at an historically black college for African-American women, it was critically important for me to understand if that event with my my then boyfriend's dad happened to women, my mother, my sister, my friends, is the literature going to support what our needs are? Maybe there's underlying disease we don't know. How do we take better care of ourselves? How do we make recommendations and learn from the science in order to live better lives? And so I thought, this isn't this isn't equity. And by the time I got to graduate school, I have a master's in public health uh, from Columbia. And as I was in graduate school, the literature was being written. The Women's Health Initiative was going on. Bernadine Healy was at the NIH and advocating with Lucille Campbell. At and Sharika for the inclusion of women in clinical trials. And I thought, absolutely, I can stand behind this because as I was writing my thesis from graduate school, after the experience of writing my, my honors thesis in college, I kept the, the question of representation in clinical trials. I want what I read to apply to me the same way that it applies to my neighbor. It was as simple as that. I thought, if this information is not representative of my lived experience, then I need to put my lived experience into this literature in some way.
0: <laughs> right. Very good. So, so maybe I've pushed it ahead of ourselves. Let's back up and, and let's talk about the problem itself um, in, in case some of viewers are not you know, caught up with maybe what the issues are with clinical trials. What is the problem with representation? And then what are the negative consequences that we see of that?
1: Right. So prior to uh, 2012, to the FDA um, FDASIA law, and I don't need to get into the weeds on the details, because I don't know the, the clients uh, specifically. But let's just say that before that time, the protection of women was thought to be by excluding them from clinical trials, there would be no risk to the unborn fetus, for example, because if we, we wouldn't want to subject a woman who is uh, pregnant to, to an investigational product, one that has not been approved. And so women were excluded for that reason. And then the, you know these, these champions in the field said, how do we ensure that the products that are in development, whether they're drugs or medical devices, and we'll talk about medical devices as well. But uh, starting with medication, if we we don't include women in a safe manner and protect women, we won't know those scientific answers until our products are approved and we'll learn about them in the surveillance of the medication in the market. And that's an undue burden on the patient population. So why should we learn about adverse events after drugs are approved? Why can't we go upstream and learn that information scientifically and and put it in the hands of the clinicians so that they can advise their patients appropriately based on the science. And so that's one demographic of, of women versus men. Uh, moving along to age, um, age, people over the age of 65 historically have been underrepresented as a diverse group in, in, in uh, clinical research. Where that is problematic is what if there's a higher prevalence of certain diseases in people over the age of 65? If they are not adequately represented in clinical trials, then we don't know the pharmacokinetic differences. We don't know the pharmacodynamic differences. If it's medical devices, we don't know if what our assumptions are about an adult population under the age of of 65 are also representative or generalizable to an older population. So we need to ensure the safe participation of all people in clinical trials who would like to volunteer to participate, which starts with their understanding of what a clinical trial is in the first place. Uh, I could push a pin in that and that, but in the interest of time, I'll move forward. With uh, with respect to age or race and ethnicity, this is a kind of an Achilles heel in, in the uh, clinical research ecosystem or HCPs, healthcare providers. This is a, a topic of conversation the absence or underrepresentation of race and ethnic groups from clinical trials. Now, take certain populations. An African American population may be 13% of the United States, but only about 5% of African Americans participate in clinical trials where the Hispanic population is concerned, they represent perhaps approximately 18% of the U.S. population, but only are represented in clinical trials, only 1% are represented in clinical trials. And we know from past experiences, we have hundreds of years, actually, of clinical trial experiences that are published. Um, there, There are many authorities on this topic, but when you look at the atrocities of clinical research prior to the safeguards being in place that they are now, there was medical experimentation that often leaves these populations fearful of the establishment or, as they say, the medical community. One, because they don't have a point of entry in or a trusted source from which to get information. And two, they're familiar with those past transgressions. And so they carry forward, you know, that's the topic of conversation, especially d- during the time of COVID when medical experimentation and vaccine development has been in the front pages of the news and on television. So the, the subject of research is top of mind for many more people now than it ever has been. And so when you look at different uh, racial or ethnic groups, you will begin to see that not all people are um, equitably um, accessing or, or accessing a clinical trial, in part because they don't trust Uh, someone, and in part because they are not invited to participate. Now, where race and ethnicity is concerned, it's also of interest on the other end of the um, uh, racial spectrum, (laughs) the the rainbow, if you will. Uh, The Asian population, for example, um, in certain clinical trials is overrepresented as a a race group. Um, And in part, many studies are done in Asian countries. And so when when participation is oversampled, um, there's a lot of scientific knowledge about the differences between a Caucasian population and Asian population or an Hispanic population, an Asian population. And that knowledge helps to make clinicians make better decisions um, and as well as making shared decisions with patient populations. So uh, people have the opportunity to take better care of themselves with more scientific knowledge in their hands. Wow.
0: So you know, a number of takeaways from that. Uh, I'm not, and thank you, uh Candle. I'm learning a lot here. Um first, the, the idea of um women not um being participating because um they might be become pregnant at some point, right? Um but then it sounds like really then they 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 said that this would all come out in the wash. Like, well let let's see what happens. So they become guinea pigs almost, right? Like, oh, well, let's see what happens and we'll we'll track it after it's been approved, right? Uh the second thing, the age thing is just uh, unbelievable to me that that most of your ill, you know, the people that go to the hospital, those that are naturally ill, are going to be over the age of 65. And the fact that they're let out is just, uh, I can't believe it. Uh, so anyway, and the third, uh, the race and ethnic groups, um, uh, as you pointed out in the pandemic, uh, the the inequity on many different levels on access, uh, affordability uh, into our healthcare system uh, has really like opened that up. And it it feels as though um, if nothing else, the data is out there. Uh, it's no longer a partisan or a political issue. It's very clear that there's a problem and issue. And so I think there does seem to be some inertia, inertia so maybe
1: political inertia.
0: Uh, so talk to us about the MedTech Color Collaborative Community.
1: Right. So um, I was introduced to MedTech Color through uh, a relationship between two uh, Spellman alum, <laughs> Spellman College alum, who who were aware that one was, uh, Uh, involved. And the other said, is there an opportunity for participation uh, for more than just people in the regulatory space? So our organization was invited to join and have two people representing our our organization. And then I was selected to be a chair of the subcommittee for product development and clinical research. So taking one quick step back, MedTech Color Collaborative Community was founded by a group of uh, executives in in the medical device arena, uh, Kwame Ulner, uh, Vanessa of Pollard are some of the founders. There were about 14 of them coming from MedTech. And in their observation, very similar to those of us who work in pharmaceuticals and in biotech companies, uh, those in medical device companies saw an absence of people of color, whether it was race or ethnicity. There was also a further underrepresentation of people in the C-suite level. There were just, you know, VPs and executive directors. And so when you have that kind of omission or absence from organizations, the thinking sometimes is is missed or lost and so those things that are known perhaps uh among the rank and file uh are just not translated at the senior leadership level and so therefore the decisions business decisions that carry forward so this group of 14 said we need to do something about this because the only time we see people of color is in um an environment that is not a business or a professional environment in these organizations. And so they decided uh, getting together what would be the framework, what would be the goals and deliverables that we want. Uh, they started in 2018 and have been moving feverishly uh, to achieve their goals. Um, as I mentioned, I'm the chair of the product development and clinical research subcommittee, and there are four subcommittees of MedTech Color. One is disease awareness. So one of the goals is to elevate awareness about diseases that disproportionately affect people of color so that they have a place, a trusted source from which to learn if their own doctor may not have the time or the people on the staff in the practice where they see their doctor, maybe there's a trusted source from which they can learn about getting information about different diseases that have a higher prevalence among people of color or any disease for that matter. It's not just going to be limited to those that are disproportionately higher in certain race and ethnic groups. The second subcommittee is recruitment and retention. So this is applicable to both drug development as well as medical device development. Recruitment is one of the most expensive components of a clinical trial and therefore retaining patients not only recruiting patients, but retaining patients is a, is a strategic imperative to be successful. Many trials fail and many trials run additional costs because recruitment is slower than anticipated and there's dropout from clinical trials. that That is well known. And so the recruitment and retention subcommittee is tasked with strategies, coming up with ways to elevate understanding about what is a clinical trial in the first place in the context of a medical diagnosis. And if you are um, have the opportunity to participate in a medical device study or in a drug study, then the recruitment and the retention subcommittee is trying to help to elevate awareness about what that pathway might be so that Person in the wild, uh, lay uh, someone in the public would be able to seek this source of information, a portal from which to learn the pathway and the process for participation in clinical trial, product development, and clinical research has several tactics and and, uh, a strategic approach over the next several years. Uh, One of them is improving vocabulary used between patients and providers, because sometimes medical jargon, whether it's device or drug, is a barrier to communicating and for people to have confidence in the decisions to participate. And again, this is a voluntary effort. Participating in the clinical trial is not mandatory if you have a diagnosis. It's voluntary, but people have a hard time deciding to do something that they know little about. So the vocabulary and the communication is very important. So there are some very um, basic um, projects that are ongoing to build the vocabulary and glossary of terms, for example, and the use of those terms um, so that people would be able to see, well, here's a video and it uses some of those terms from, from that glossary. Other projects within product development and uh, clinical research are webinars. We are trying to bring experts in so that people with lived experiences in pharmaceutical and medical device companies can talk about their lessons learned and their best practices. There is nothing better than hearing someone who has been through from soup to nuts, from beginning to end, uh, last patient in study closed to publication, sharing their lived experience of that publication so that they can elevate awareness about what worked and what didn't work and what others can do moving forward. The fourth subcommittee is evidence generation. So with a product that is being submitted to the regulatory authorities, it has to have a package of data from the drug studies and, and or the device studies. And that package is the evidence from which the regulatory authority makes a decision to approve or deny approval of that drug or of that device. So the evidence team is working on a set of uh, um, activities in order to meet goals of people from underrepresented racial groups or or ethnic backgrounds very interesting so
0: so it sounds like the collaborative has really you know hit the whole lifeline of the development of uh, drug or device right so Uh, let's hope all the pain points right
1: right and and you know more importantly than than just those that will probably evolve over time because there's quite a bit of overlap in the subcommittees but one of the things that doesn't happen routinely is best practices from drug device development from medical device development to drug development cross-pollination of ideas. Uh, the networking opportunity so that if there's only a few people in one company or only one person in another company in a certain executive role, then the the opportunity of the collaborative is to grow the networking opportunity, the cross-pollination of the ideas. Very similar to what the founders of the TEDS conference. I don't know if you know the origin story of the TEDS, Technology, Entertainment, Design. TEDS is an acronym for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. But Richard Sol Werman was one of the co-founders of the TEDS. And what he often talked about was, you know, people in engineering don't talk to people who are musicians, don't talk to people who are scientists. If the people from these disciplines would just get together and the thing that worked over there could work over there, but it's never been tested. These people don't talk. So that cross-pollination of ideas is why we have this proliferation of the TEDS conferences worldwide. It's the same kind of of Darwinian thinking. Like, Can you just sprinkle a little bit of flavor from your experience over here because no one from over here even knows anything about what you do. So um, the networking is a real critical component of the Med Tech Color collaborative community.
0: Now, I love that. And I've seen that in many places where you just get the right people in the room and, and, and one from one industry and next from another industry. And within a 20-minute conversation, they will have solved a billion-dollar issue. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just because they talk to each other, it's it's amazing to see too. It's like you don't need a law, you don't need regulation, you don't need funding. You just right. needed to talk to each other for five minutes, and you and you figured out a problem. Uh, right. it's, it's great to see it work. Um, so, talk to us a little bit. You you implied this. Um, what what is the difference, that I think we can all kind of envision. Um, the inequities if you're if you're testing drugs um, just on you know white thirty year old males um, but what's the device what's special about the device and product development what makes right. that different
1: so for example if in uh, within COVID in the recent experience we've learned that with the pulse oximeter for example the refraction or uh, and I'm not a, a technical person I'm an engineer so I don't want to overspeak some about something I don't know the specific. Specifics about technically, but in general, if the color of one's skin changes the way that light is reflected or refracted in that device, then that knowledge in the development of that device should be in the hands of the developers so that they can account for that when the device is used by one person with one complexion and one person with another complexion. If they don't know the differences, then I don't know that the reading is the same because it was intended based on the population that it was studied in. Uh, the, the reading and the the, the the output is based on the knowledge of what went into the design. So if those assumptions were not did not account for, oh, we didn't know until we finished designing the pulse oximeter that it would work differently in people that are of uh, you know have white skin versus people who have black skin varying shades. Oops, you know, that's really all that they can say, because it's it's not top of mind. Um, and we don't know, therefore, if the product can be used safely. Now, that's an example where maybe safety is not an issue, but it does become an issue with medical devices that are considered higher risk. Right. So there are some classifications within medical devices where there are low devices, low risk devices, where the difference between two um, um, skin types may not be an appreciable difference in the output. But something that is a higher risk medical device would have significance, uh, that absence of knowledge um, going into medical device. But I don't work in the medical device industry, so I can't speak specifically to uh, those details. But in the medical uh, drug development, those questions become very significant. I'll give one case in point Um, in lung cancer. Uh, there is a type of lung cancer uh, called non-small cell adenocarcinoma. And there are newer drugs, or at least there were. they were new uh, 10, 10 plus years ago, but newer medications were coming out to treat adenocarcinoma. And one of them required knowledge of one's biomarker so that they could see whether or not the drug metabolize the same way in the populations well lo and behold through a lot of work a lot of trials the understanding that asian non-smoking females were the phenotype of patients for which this medication was efficacious and safe as efficacious as intended everybody else different pharmacokinetics and different pharmacodynamics different metabolisms so therefore might not work. (laughs) This this medication, this, this EGFR inhibitor type of medication may not work, may not be effective. So why would we, it would be unethical to prescribe a medication to a population that it was now known this medication may not be effective for that diagnosis. We need to, restrict or limit how we make recommendations for what medications can be prescribed to patients based on the science and the science is the trials and so if we've learned through the trial experiences and development of 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 products like this in this particular class that this one phenotypic expression asian female non-smoker is the population. It's only about 11% of all people with non-small cell lung cancer. So it's important to have that information up front so that in the short time that clinicians have to be impactful with their patients, they get to the outcomes that they can.
0: Yeah. It's so so specific too. The phenotype was so specific. That's just crazy, right? Not smoking Asian. That's just unbelievable.
1: It's discovery of things like that, that you, that you, it's very exciting. Um, That level of specificity is so exciting because it, it, think about um, a patient who does not know whether or not their doctor's recommendation is the best possible recommendation for them. They're trusting that they're getting the best recommendation. Well, can you imagine the delays? I mean, with any cancer, delaying um, diagnosis or delaying treatment is not ideal, right? No no diagnosis. It's not ideal to delay, uh, generally speaking. So if we knew that science earlier then we could provide the right medication to the right patient in the right timing for for the best outcome. And that's really what we want with any medication or any device. We want the right medication or the right device in the right population at the right time.
0: Um, You you touched on something, you know, we're talking a lot about the the scientific aspects of clinical development and and how to make good science, right? How to have good um, test groups and and, and full range of that. But something we always come back to in this, in in this podcast with on many different issues is trust. And you just talked about trust and it sounds like some of the committees involved with this um, initiative are starting to try and build that trust. And we certainly saw in the pandemic that of all the sciences, medicine, You have to have trust in in order to even present uh, scientific, uh, good scientific uh, evidence. So talk to us a little bit about that, especially since, uh, as as you said, there are certain groups which have a history of having a good reason for not trusting clinical trials, right?
1: Right. And, you know, there are, this is such a, a multi factor, uh, multi factorial um, issue in that there isn't one group that trusts and other groups that don't trust. Uh, generally speaking, when we talk about the issue of trust, oftentimes it's because of a lack of or, or misinformation. So if your trusted source, for example, is the group of people you see every week in the barbershop, Uh, maybe they don't have uh, clinical training and maybe they have misinformation or misunderstanding of the information they do have. If that is your trusted source and you are unaware that the information you're getting is not accurate, then you could go and live your life based on inaccurate information and make decisions based on inaccurate information. And so those who are known trusted sources in communities, perhaps are people who have a platform and speak to large groups of people within their communities. And they may not have the answers, but they may be able to connect their community members and residents to people who do have the answers. And so trust sometimes is Inclusion trust can be can be garnered by by the inclusion. If if you are not at the table, there's a there's a huge push right now for patient focused drug development. You may hear the terms patient centricity in in industry, and and one of the things that is is becoming more in fashion is including the voice of patients, patient experience data, um, because we know. Randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials being the gold standard in clinical research does not yield or generate sufficient and broad evidence, those outcome measures that are from those clinical trials. It's a very small amount of information to put into the hands of clinicians who are caring for patients. And so if there were opportunities to collect broader swaths of data and then have a way to combine and aggregate that data, analyze that data, make that data actionable. We're talking now moving into the space of real world evidence. So what if the wearables and what if set wearables with sensors or what if the use of technologies like telemedicine or the use of apps could support the data that could be used to inform the drug development, then clinicians might stand to understand the disease state better in the different groups of people that have the disease. So coming back to what, what happens when those data sources are not used similarly, there's limited information. Drugs get approved and devices get approved all the time simply with randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials. And so some segments of the population just don't have a point of contact where they go to someone that they trust and can get information other than their doctor. And guess what? Not every doctor does research. There is a diminishing number of investigators that perform clinical trials. And if there are limited numbers of people who investigate or, or do it, investigations and, and a diminishing number that, you know, suffer one trial and that's it. And they don't do any more. And so people in communities don't always know where to go for accurate information. And therefore they might go to what we call Dr. Google. <laughs> um, Dr. Google is becoming a great clinician uh, for people who are motivated to seek information that would help to improve their, their, conditions. So finding people and finding sources from which they can derive accurate information is one of the things that MedTech Color stands on, is trying to connect people to where there are accurate sources of information. And that means sometimes for people becoming trusted sources from which other people can learn and get information.
0: Very good. I, I, I love that idea of using the community, right? Going to the community. And, um, so much that we're, we're thinking, and, and and I think you pointed this out before the show, um, we're actually at a very exciting time in history in terms of our technology and data, and the data being pushed forward with interoperability and third-party apps where you could get very large, uh, perhaps, clinical trials going, right, with people's uh, right, right in that their hand to participate, right? Um, so talk to us a little bit about that. I, I think an exciting time, right?
1: Oh my gosh, it's so exciting. I'm I now smiling. Um, um, for the last three years, um, I, I've spent, um, the focus of my work has been on decentralized clinical trials. And how I got into this effort was rooted in something that happened 10 years earlier. 10 years earlier, when our organization had an, an abysmally small number of ethnic participants in a clinical trial for a disease state where there's a higher prevalence of disease, at least in this country, it became clear that there was room for improvement. And in the conversation I had with my manager at the time, I went to our job board, I took the template, and I just started writing what I thought was missing from the approach that we were taking. And one of the things that was missing was the use of people with lived experiences to inform the decision-making. So my role was not in the decision-making. I did not have decision-making authority. I didn't even work in clinical operations at the time. But fast forward 10 years, the technology helps to reduce some of the barriers to participation. So let me just give a definition so that everyone understands what a decentralized clinical trial is decentralization in clinical trials. So traditional trials happen at sites, physical brick and mortar facilities where a patient we know on average has to drive upwards of two hours to get to a site. Again, there are not a lot of clinicians who are also investigators. And so the sites that are operational and viable um, may not do clinical trials in every single disease state that there is. So finding a clinical trial that is relevant for whatever diagnosis a patient has could be like looking for a needle in a haystack. That's point one. So decentralized clinical trials reduces that barrier by having the conduct of the clinical trial performed via telemedicine. So an investigator can be anywhere, as long as they are licensed to practice medicine in the geographic area, at least we're talking for the United States, at least, even though these happen outside the U.S., let's, let's restrict our, our discussion to the U.S., uh, the clinician can be in a different physical geographic area than where the patient is, as long as they're licensed to practice in that, that state. And a physician can hold as many licenses as they are uh, that they successfully obtain. Uh, the use of apps, the use of the, the telemedicine platform, mobile nursing can be deployed to go to patients' home to do physical exams and to do clinical outcome assessments. Those assessments can be a variety of types. Um, We can collect electronic patient-reported outcome data via things like surveys using tablets, and those data become data that are available in real time as studies are, are, are taking place. What happens, therefore, for patients, the potential benefit to patients is that those studies, in theory, could conclude even faster than in traditional brick-and-mortar study, where we have study binders, we have people in physical locations that are that have a specific hour of operation, a decentralized clinical trial can take place before a person's workday, in the evenings, or on weekends. And so, to the, to the extent that the staff are willing to, to conduct their research in those times of day or days of week, decentralized clinical trials reduce the barrier of participation because perhaps patient populations work just like we do. And therefore, if they have to go to work, it would be very difficult for them to coordinate missing the time from work. It could be very difficult for them to, if they have childcare responsibilities or other family responsibilities, to oversee those, those and coordinate those other responsibilities. And clinical trials take time, so it's not perhaps just one study visit, but it could be over several weeks, months, or over a year. And in order to retain, we talked earlier about recruitment and retention, not only is it difficult to find eligible patients, those who meet the inclusion-exclusion criteria, but that also retain to the end of the study so that we move that scientific knowledge forward to the results of that study and the publication and presentation of those data all of that you know this is a this is a, a comprehensive effort and for people to understand what the value of that means, hopefully they would learn about it through participation but hopefully they could also learn about it from people who've also been uh, through it and can seek the content of well let's read some patient experience um, you know um, something that's published somewhere where we can learn what a clinical trial is from someone who's actually been through one in the disease that we actually have how cool would that be Um, i would love to see that uh one day And
0: that gets back to what you were saying about networking, right? Being in the room. And if you're not in the room, then at least reading something that somebody has gone through the same disease that you've gone through and they've, got a, they, they've done something about it that, that maybe you want to do as well. So that's fascinating. That's fascinating.
1: Precisely, highly regulated and, um, um, industry, and something that I think, uh, from the public's perspective, um, they're you know they may not know what they don't know, so they may not understand how highly regulated the industry is. Sometimes the only thing that makes the headlines is the bad news. So, um.
0: <laughs> that's right. And you brought up a number of things that we've heard. Um, you know, uh, from many of our our, our uh, guests on this show, that you know, pandemic uh, a horrible tragedy in, in many ways. But one thing it did do was um, show that there's many ways to conduct business, uh, uh, many ways to, to conduct education that doesn't need the brick and mortar. And and nothing has been more clear than what it's done to healthcare, where the brick and mortar is not necessary. And if you want to improve healthcare, you go to the place. You go to the patient, right? You bring healthcare to the patient. If that's through mobile apps or through tele, uh, telehealth or whatever it is, and, and you're talking about like, here's where medicine starts, right? Here's where right. the device starts. That is right. it's beautiful.
1: Right, and if you if you wanna extend that, that point even further, you can look at some of what's recently published through the consulting houses, the major consulting houses, and, and anyone could Google this, um, any of the top five uh, consulting firms, and see that not only are clinical trials uh, becoming more hybrid in design so that those digital components can be integrated, bringing the clinical research experience to people at their home, but it's also going into their community through pharmacy. So historically, if the research opportunity is only happening at the site or in the academic medical center, what if you and the people that you know, go to a doctor that's in the community where you live? Well, if that one doctor doesn't do research, you might not ever have a conversation about a clinical trial until you see the television and this vaccine research development in in your face. And you may not have a context of where to learn what else there is to know about clinical trials. But what if you were to be able to go to your community and while you're picking up whatever else you're picking up from your pharmacy, your local pharmacy, you would be able to talk to someone about a clinical trial? Well, you were already going to the pharmacy. So this again is another vehicle to drive awareness and understanding among people who don't work in the life sciences industry or medical device industry. It's it's putting the information in people's hands where they are. It's really meeting people where they are. And that, to me, is game-changing. I mean, I think about a a single parent, you know, whose time is already limited and doesn't have a a backup, a person to transport kids to places. But imagine one-stop shopping, going into a place where they could go for basic food products, pick up a prescription and talk about the possibility of a clinical trial, that is game changing. Can you imagine the children who hear the, the elements, the basic, basic elements of clinical trials? I can see this being in show and tell in an in a elementary school. I mean, I would love to hear young people being able to understand at a very basic level, what's the relevance of that to what happens to grandma or grandpa or mom or dad if they have a diagnosis that the family is aware of? Well, guess what? These two things could be related. These two things, there's going to be medication that's made or there's going to be devices that could be implanted or worn by the person who has the diagnosis and who among us doesn't know someone with some diagnosis. So um, to me, clinical trials will become, you know, just like baseball.
0: (laughs) (laughs) i like that interwoven with our life right just like baseball that's great that's great you know come to think of it right seventh grade science you learn about the scientific method but you don't learn about trials and like you said we all know somebody who is either in one or needs would would benefit from one or or will benefit one
1: we may not be a patient of any type but we probably know a patient of some type and clinical trials therefore should be relevant and and equity in clinical trials equitable access, equitable opportunity to participate should be common among all people. It shouldn't be limited to the people who happen to live in close proximity or whose doctor happens to also be a research investigator.
0: Right, absolutely. Okay, so if I'm a listener and um, I'm listening to you speak and I'm I hearing about this MedTech Color Collaborative, um, is there something I can do? Is there a call to order here uh, or a call to action, I'm sorry, uh, that, um, that that something that, that we can do from the ground up. Go ahead.
1: Absolutely. So so I get goosebumps when I think about how much opportunity there is. One thing is there there aren't many opportunities to learn about what happens in biopharmaceutical or medical device companies in the first place. So just the succession planning and the transition from college to graduate school to employment, how do people learn about these kinds of roles? Maybe they know one company, but they certainly don't know the all of the companies and they may not know the opportunities to, to be gainfully employed by one of these companies if that was an aspiration of theirs. You can't dream about something you don't know anything about. So um, finding a pathway to learn whether or not companies will be recruiting um, is one call to action. We would love to see more representation, more diversity within these organizations in the first place. I don't know that any company has goals specifically. I know um, some companies do set forth goals, but they're not necessarily to have a certain percentage of the population in the country. For example, the demographics of the country where they operate. So it would be nice, but I don't see that. So having a push to have representation and not just among those who are at entry level positions. What I'm talking about specifically is there being development plans so that there are senior executives who are people of color and the lived experiences and the differences that may exist, we we won't know if we don't study it. So when we talk about diversity, it doesn't have to come from only diverse people or people who are representatives of diverse groups. Quality science and and patient readiness comes from all experiences and all of that can be brought to bear because the opportunity there is to have the highest quality science. So that's the first part, having more representation in-house. Increasing mentorship. So the one or two people that may exist at those C-suite levels in one or a few companies, I mean, there's probably less than a handful of people of color who have ever achieved uh, a senior executive status in, in biopharmaceutical or in medical device companies. And that's just unfortunate, but uh, hopefully that will change. So the second part is mentorship from those individuals. If you are a person who has achieved a certain level of executive status in your organization, lending your experience, whether it making videos or participating in interviews so that the next generation can learn from your experience some of the things that work, some of the things that are guardrails that may not work. Uh, The third uh, component of of things that I think people can do is to go to the website, MedTech Color Collaborative Community, and and just Google, do a search for it and and find out. There is a um, call to action also to increase the amount of funding to tech developers. So venture funding is, is a critical piece of why MedTech Color exists. We know and have read that less than 1% of funding uh, from a VC funding, a venture capital funding goes to um, innovators of color. MedTech Color just hosted a a pitch competition and there were 10 semifinalists and who, whose ideas were presented, these are individuals who will get a variety of uh, support uh, for their innovations because if those innovators are not funded, then some of those digital solutions will never be brought to bear. Those those technology solutions will not uh, be realized, will not be scaled. So supporting the the VC component and the funding component. And then there's also a networking breakfast at the annual AdvaMed meeting. Um, You can um, look on AdvaMed or look on MedTech Color to see what the date that they are of those events. The next one, I believe, uh, for ADVAMed will be in September. Uh, also be on the lookout for webinars. There are different goals for the webinar series. Um, one of the uh, next uh, webinars is coming up is April 14th. And this is from the Evidence Generation Subcommittee. This is the third webinar from MedTech Color. Uh, the, rec- the recruitment and retention uh, webinar is on YouTube. You can find that. Uh, We had one in product development um, recently, learning to design with diversity and inclusion in mind. It was a fireside chat with a panel of senior executives from medical device companies. And this uh, upcoming evidence um, series webinar will be April 14th, and it's a written discussion. So there will be a one-hour program on April 14th, and then there will be an open uh, forum for comments, and people can be tagged, and it will be a way to engage participants outside of the initial discussion with the panelists. Uh, So look for the event on the calendar on MedTech Color.
0: Excellent. Uh, It sounds like great resources. Uh, And I'll repeat the name of the initiative here, MedTech Color Collaborative. Uh, Google that, uh, see what you got. Um, And uh, Kendall, uh, great conversation, a very interesting uh, issue. Uh, I'll leave you with the last word. Uh, Anything else you want to pitch to the audience?
1: If anything, I would say that health equity is, again, not something that has to be championed by people who are from different race or ethnic groups. It can be something that is championed by all uh, in the interest of having the highest quality science to inform the development of medications as well as devices.
0: Brilliantly said. Thank you, Kendall. Uh, Great discussion. Very much appreciate having you here on, on The Collective
1: Voice. Thank you, Matthew. It's been a pleasure.
0: And this has been the Collective Voice of Health IT, a Weedy podcast. We talked today with Kendall Whitlock, Chair of Product Development and Clinical Research for the MedTech Color Collaborative Community. You can find this episode, many more on our website, weedy.org. I want to thank you all for joining us and be safe.